Welcome, one and all, to the Film Harmonic with your hosts, Noah East and Andy Ferguson. In episode 58, we have two new movies to discuss, starting with the newest from director Kelly Reichardt and A24 Films, It's First Cow, followed by Hulu's most recent offering from director Max Barbacow and the Lonely Island Guys, which is entitled Palm Springs. And in our pick six segment, we rank the six best alien invasion films of all time. Leading us into the throwback challenge to close out the show, in which we honor the passing of film composer Ennio Morricone by visiting one of his most famous contributions to that neither of us had ever seen before, 1984's Once Upon a Time in America, directed by Sergio Leone. So, Andy, uh, the news came in this morning that actress Kelly Preston passed away today from a two-year battle with cancer. What's your favorite career moment from her? Um, it's probably not unpopular. It's a couple of moments from Jerry Maguire. <laughs> yeah. One very kind of like provocative moment when I remember seeing really young, early on in the movie where she's banging Jerry in a pretty insanely kind of cartoonish way almost. Yeah. <laughs> and then later on when she wallops him, mm. gives him a nice little punch in the face, she makes her presence known in that movie pretty yeah. well I, I i don't know i mean i'm not a big like kelly preston expert but um though that's easily my favorite for me uh it's obviously going to be for love of the game that mm. her performance in that i thought she's every bit as good as costner was in that and it's one of the few times i found her to be really like human and relatable and um and still kind of good at the comedic stuff that she was asked to do and really balanced that with some of the more dramatic moments of that film that I think is a little bit underrated. So. You are a champion of that movie. <laughs> yes. So rest in peace, Kelly Preston. We will start this week with a film that Andy and I have been very patiently waiting to see for many months now, ever since our trip to the Olympia Film Festival was indefinitely postponed. It is the newest from director Kelly Reichardt, and it follows two unlikely friends on the Oregon Trail in the 1820s as they attempt to steal milk from a wealthy landowner in order to prosper their bakery business. The time has come to discuss First Cow. First Cow. So here we are. Um, it's been a it's been a while. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've been waiting on this for quite a long time. I was really excited about. That. I don't think we really talked too much about how excited we were. So I don't know how to gauge your interest in this, but I was so into seeing this movie mm -hmm. months ago, and um, kind of forgot about it for a while because we didn't know when they were going to release it. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks ago, they're like, "Oh, July 10th." So I was so excited to watch this. Um, Kelly Reichardt. I think we've talked about this a little bit, isn't necessarily, she's she's someone who can be appreciated by a select audience. And I can't say that I can watch this with my significant other, significant other any of her movies. Yeah. My, mine I think is, you're the same. Right? Mine's the same way. I think slow cinema in general is not something that my significant other uh, can really, has the patience for. Um, uh and it's not because she's dumb. She's smarter than I am. Um, it's just, it's not her cup of tea, you know? And it happens to be mine, so. Yeah, same. And I don't think that uh, that my partner really has the patience for it either. Um, just let's get things going is her mindset. Yeah. And so I reserve Kelly Reichardt movies and the like for <laughs> alone time. <Yeah. laughs> and that's what I did with First Cal. I woke up at 
5 a.m. one morning the other day, and I was like, this is, I'm going to watch this movie like on my porch while the sun rises. And Perfect. let me tell you, that was a great way to watch this movie. Yeah, I bet. Um, just had a full pot of coffee throughout this whole movie and just sat there on my porch, new porch that I'm obsessed with, by the way, and um, really took this movie in. And it has everything I love about Kelly Reichard in it, this movie. Um, it, it, it really could go hand in hand with a lot of her movies, but more so the obvious connection is with... Um, <clears throat> um, Jeez, I'm forgetting the name of it. Meek's Cutoff. Meek's Cutoff, yes. Yeah, yes. it's funny that you brought that up because I, I kind of see it as as a as a perfect mixture of Meek's Cutoff and Old Joy. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, it's yeah. got the the Oregon Trail Old West thing that Meek's Cutoff does, but it also has this unlikely friendship bond and pounding around in the woods together thing that Old Joy does. It you does. put those two together and you kind of get a lot of the elements that make up First Cow. Yeah, kind of. This one also is is about people who meet each other for the first time instead of old joy with old friends connecting true but this is this is also something that that really has something to say about immigrants and, and and different ethnicities mingling together in a time when it was really seen as uh, a no-no let's say that <laughs> and so that's another thing i love about this this movie that coming out at a time like this um and the reason i think that she's kind of really obsessed almost with um, gentle masculinity, not even masculinity, really, just males who are kind people for the most part. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, that don't want to flex muscles to, to express something. Um, and this era, I think, I think she's, she doesn't seem like the type of filmmaker who enjoys the modern age and enjoys technology and things like that. Um, she really kind of enjoys silence, <laughs> you know, and um, this movie has a lot of that and it has very little dialogue. Um, and mostly actors we're not too familiar with. I mean, Toby Jones is the only actor I saw that I recognized in this. Uh, there's Aaliyah Shawcat. Oh, th- that's true. She very briefly, and I think a really brilliant way to begin the movie, we don't need to talk about it. I don't think we should at all, but no. I love what she does early on in this movie. Yeah. And how she bookends the movie. Yeah, because of the way she sets it up, it makes that ending so much more rewarding and impactful. And you kind of see it as it's, you slowly you know see where it's it coming. going because of those first images of the movie. Yeah. I mean, the last 60 seconds, you're like, oh, wait, oh, wait, oh, wait. You know, and it's it's really rewarding the the way she decided to 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 bookend it to borrow a phrase. Yes, absolutely, and I think that's what made me even appreciate the movie even more. Not just after I was done watching it, but over the last few days thinking about it too. Um, she just has this almost otherworldly patience. It's not seen in a lot of American movies, you know. It's it's a tenderness. That she, it's not only a tenderness with how she moves her camera and and sets up scenes for her actors, but it's like, it comes through in, in like just the way that she frames things. Now, and I don't mean frames things in a physical sense. I mean like, because she co-wrote the film as well. And I feel like this is this is her looking at complex male friendships looking at um the you know the arduous journey that that was setting up the old west and in an era of 
hard men, what men who are not necessarily that hard, their role in that world and in that time as well. I mean, she's much more concerned with those kind of things. And that takes a particular amount of tenderness that you're not going to get from many directors outside of her. Yeah, and I love the the focus on, yes, in a time of, if you're a male in this era, in the eight, early 1800s, and you can't necessarily build something or use your hands in a very strong way, you have to get creative and you have to find other ways to make a living. And that's what these two gentlemen in this movie do. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah, Cookie especially, you know, he has a gift that is incorporating using his hands and making something. But that's one of the things that I found so interesting about King Lou is that he's kind of the ideas guy. He's not making anything. He's just, he's kind of, he's really great at encouraging Cookie. And and he's still an ideas man. He's kind of like, I'll handle the money. I'll handle the 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 advertising, for lack of a better word. You know, he he's not making anything, but he's he's a hell of a cheerleader. It's a great collaboration between the two, and it's it it's almost like early entrepreneurs in a way. It's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see them exist in this world. You know, when so many people, specifically males in this time, are so kind of the same you know there's a moment when they meet up again and um he you know cookie king lou sees him in a bar after a bar fight has just broken out and and cookie has been tasked with looking after a baby in a bassinet uh and they're the only ones left in this bar and he turns around and king lou recognizes him and uh he says you know i got a bottle back at my place you want to help me finish it and it's kind of like, well, you know, I got this baby here. He's like, oh, just leave it. And they start walking back to, to King Lou's place. And it's just kind of like, you know, this very shy and quiet and tender way to strike up a male friendship and just be like, look, I recognize that you're kind of like I am and you don't have a necessarily carved out place in this world let's let's be pals. Come over to my place and let's have a drink. You know what I mean? In this very, like, timid way to approach doing it, but they both re- recognize that thing in one another that, like, we're outsiders in this world. And um, there's strength in numbers, and we need to band together. Otherwise, these these other guys are going to eat us alive out here. You know? And, and, and Reichardt still shows those men and how foolish and and foolhardy they are, you know, the, the fur trappers all like arguing over each other and get in fights, things like that, and the bar fight as well, you know. But she's and she shows that, but she's not interested in that. Mm-hmm. She's not yeah, interested in focusing on that it's for there. more than a couple of minutes. It's about these this particular friendship, and I found that so beautiful. I found it fascinating, and then you know the whole other side of things. There's there's the greedy side. Yeah. So the the first half of the film is really setting up those parameters for that friendship and 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 telling your audience this is what I'm focusing on. And then let's get into the to the meat of it. Let's get into the story. And it actually picks up quite a bit. It does. It's still, actually. you know, Reichardt's kind of mode, exactly. Yeah. It's still a slow burn, but as far as she's concerned, yeah, it picks up quite a bit and we get into some hijinks for lack of a better word. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Especially when you get more and more into the world of the Toby Jones character, 
who owns this prized cow that they must have. They simply have to have the milk from this cow. How are they going to get it? And how are they going to make the Toby Jones character interested in their product and all of this? Yeah, it's... Uh, I found Toby Jones really excellent in this. Yeah, I mean, he's one of... Perfectly cast. He's one of those character actors that definitely does not ever get enough credit for what he does, but the, he is absolutely flawlessly cast in yeah, this. Yeah, he has that period piece vibe about him in general. He really, he really, really <laughs> he does. does. The scenes with um, Cookie and the cow, when he is milking the cow, mm -hmm. and he speaks so sweetly and gently to the cow, I think those scenes speak volumes mm -hmm. as to just the character development of his character. It's one of Record's best characters, I think. Really, it is. Yeah. Really Fascinating. Is. And John Magaro, who plays him, is just pitch perfect. Yeah, he's great. He's, he's outstanding. And, and the, again, that look for that period of time, he, mm -hmm. he looks perfect. But that's the other thing. The costumes mm -hmm. and the set decoration and everything around this. I mean, this is so authentic looking. It's And you would think her budgets are bigger than they are, and she never has had a big budget. This looks like it was probably expensive. It looks excellent. But it but it but it wasn't. This is why she only makes a movie once every four-ish years, because she's tirelessly working on these movies the entire time. Yeah, to bring them an off authenticity that mm -hmm. that you that it comes through very clearly on the screen whereas other films that are kind of like this you kind of see through those cracks this there are no cracks it's seamless also before we give our ratings i have to say this is one of those rare occasions and i know you've done this before with movies where i was familiar with the score long before i listened to the score a lot on spotify because the movie was technically released yeah earlier this year thus the score was released and posted for for listening the score by William Tyler is just, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I was not familiar with it before the film, but it was one of the things within the first 20 minutes that really stood out to me. Um, That's what I mean is that you've done things like that with uh, like Jackie. You had not, have you still not I've seen still not Jackie, seen Jackie, right? and it's so one it's like of my favorite scores, where, yeah. When you, when you do see it, which you probably will at some point, yeah. you're going to be like, oh yeah, I feel like I already live in this world. Yeah. And that's kind of how I felt with this movie when the score started in. And it made me like the movie even more. Now that we're talking about it like this, it's making me like it even more. Yeah, to be exactly. I'm at a four and a half on it. I'm at a four on this, almost four and a half. Um, uh, this, I have a feeling we'll be talking about this next week, and we'll we'll clue in listeners later on on, on what that. There's means. a good chance. But um, yeah, this this was a this was well worth the wait. Um, yes. This is, I'm slowly getting, uh, 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 crossing things off on my Kelly Reichardt list. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, this is a new one. Um, I'm glad to have notched this one off. This yeah, is. Yeah. I mean, you don't have much left at this point, right? Wendy and Lucy? Got a, got a fair amount still. Mm -hmm. So, okay. but this was super rewarding. Our next film of the week is the newest from director Max Barbacow in association with The Lonely Island. And it is streaming now on Hulu. It is a sci-fi rom-com starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti as two strangers who meet at a destination wedding only to get stuck in a time loop. Let's discuss Palm Springs. Palm Springs. Well, you really have to ask yourself, do we need another time loop comedy right now? Yeah. I think that's the first question that came to my mind when I started this. I was like, oh boy, is it time yet? Because we've had, I mean, it's not like we've had a ton of them, but this is the type of movie that really can only be stretched so far. Yeah, there's only so many things you can do with this premise. Mm -hmm. um, and I did not know anything about the film. Neither did I. Uh, uh, up until maybe like 10 minutes before I started started it. Um, 
And I think that that definitely helped because I kind of was, I was learning as I was going. Um, but uh, uh, go ahead and, and give, I know I gave a little bit of a synopsis, but give our viewers a little bit more. Well, it's basically about these two people who you aren't sure exactly if they've met before when we first meet them. There's this strange connection that they have. They're at this destination wedding out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And um, they're both there he, with different people. I don't think she's with anyone necessarily. We don't know who she's with. Right. So it's kind of up in the air there. But he's with his girlfriend who seems kind of like... She's one of the bridal party. She's she's in the bridal party and she doesn't really seem interested in him. And you know. No, she's much more concerned with... with the wedding itself, mm -hmm. and he seems oddly checked out He's of the whole just like, thing. Yeah, it seems like his head is somewhere else, which we quickly find it is. They spend the wedding-ish together, and they spend the night of the wedding kind of together, and they are interested in each other, and then they wake up the next morning, and it's the same day again. And that happens many, many times in this movie. And he is... Not surprised at all that it's Not the next all. day. You can see why he was checked out. She is freaked out that it's Absolutely. the next day. And I think that's about all you need to say yeah. to yeah. set up the we film. We don't need to go into too many details yeah. beyond that. Um, so, uh, uh, but where where you go from there, um, it does do some some new things with, with a genre that, like you said, we don't have a ton of these films, but they all tend to be very derivative. Mm -hmm. and so th that was the task this movie had. And they all tend to be very derivative of one particular film. Uh -huh. And that's Groundhog Day. Yes. yes. Um, this one makes seems to make a concerted effort to sidestep ever mentioning that. And I find that to be somewhat admirable. Yes. yes. And, and it also says, you know, most of these movies are about the male character and about the guy who's experiencing this time loop and what does he need to do to get out of it? This one kind of turns it around a little bit and says, yeah, Andy Samberg's character is a major character in this movie, but he's not necessarily the focus of the movie. I don't know how much experience you had with Kristen Milioti before this, but I did not have any. Nor have I. I've never seen her. So I found her very capable of taking charge of this movie in this kind of really main role in this movie. Um, so their relationship together is complicated, obviously, at first. And then once she starts opening herself up to more information from him, then it goes in all sorts of different directions. And then you get to have the, well, it depends on where your mileage goes on the repetition of this kind of thing. Um, you're right. I think it does... I agree with you that it does do some new, newish things um, with the setup. Uh, it, it is, it helps that it's actually pretty well written and it's brisk and it's well paced. It's edited well. It's only ninety minutes, and that is key, I think. Um, but I, I, I can only go so far with it. Um, I, I, I'm not like a. This seems to be praised a little bit. It's a. You know, um, again, it might be due to our current times where everyone's like wanting to praise something so badly that almost everything is getting overrated right now. Yeah. Because you can't go to the movie theater and anytime you get a new movie, you're just like, oh, I want to love it. I want to embrace it. I want to hug it. I think people are doing that with this movie. Maybe more. I don't understand like the full embrace of this movie, 
there's, there's some, some a lot of kind of like smaller, smaller characters that I don't really find that interesting. Even J.K. Simmons, I just thought he was okay. Mm-hmm. It's fine. What they do with him is not necessarily. They could have done a lot more with him. Yeah, yeah, and he seems kind of bored. He seems kind of bored in this part. Well, I hate to break it to you. I absolutely love this film. Wow, you I love this film. I don't know how to tell you. I am head over heels for this movie. Whoa. Yeah, I love it. Um, <laughs> I had so much fun with this film. I I think it's hilarious. I think that um, it's a it, it's a blast, especially how it skewers this concept. Um, I love how it's not necessarily just fun. It's very um, misanthropic and nihilistic, and 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 it's you know the way it deals with a lot of existential stuff is is both poignant. And really funny, and this in in like a very like a, a gallows humor kind of way. Um, I think Kristen Milioti gives one of my favorite performances of the year. Whoa! I absolutely love her in this. I think Sandberg is better in this than maybe I've seen him in anything. But he's not. He's he's not even all that special. Uh, it, this is her movie, and I she I, I'm. I cannot stop singing her praises. I've been telling everybody all day today to watch this. I, 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 am, I am absolutely in love with this movie. You do like it more than I do. Um, I like this film, but... Yeah, and I think that what you, what you mentioned about Sandberg's performance, I think he's almost intentionally sees it that way, too. And like he says, okay, I am the supporting character in this movie. You can almost tell he's, he's got that mindset and he knows that that's his place in the movie. Yeah, I mean, so many of these types of films, it's about, like you mentioned, it's the male character who has to figure out how to get out of it. His character is so resigned to his fate in a very nihilistic kind of way where it's just like, all of this is meaningless, I'm just going to veg out and enjoy it. And her character is, because he's been living through it for so long, her character is just being brought into it for the first time and is trying to f- wrap her head around all of it. And so that's why, really, as an audience, we're looking at it through her lens. And the way she reacts to certain things along the pathway of beginning to understand what has happened to her, and then and then her inevitably wanting to figure out how to get out of it. Um, I just found all of that so fascinating and rewarding and 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 then when you mix that in with the way that they skewer things and there's a lot of like fun non sequitur jokes that that are very lonely island but there's not a whole lot of that there's just the nice like right amount of it well and it's, there's there's a darkness to it that is nice too yeah absolutely and it's and it's there throughout the whole thing it's like mm-hmm. it's it's part of the skeleton of the film uh, if i have any knocks on it it is like you mentioned like other than Sandberg and Miliati, there's not really a whole lot else going on here. Simmons is is criminally underused. Uh, so is Meredith Hagner, who plays Sandberg's girlfriend, who who is just so good at playing that type of kind of dits, I guess you want to, for the lack of a better word. Yeah, if I had to say, like, who's the third best in it, I probably would give it to her. Yeah, and they don't give a lot to Tyler Hoechlin as the, the groom. They don't give him a lot. Not a ton. Because I think he's capable. Sure. They don't give him a lot to yeah, do. Yeah, he's just a pretty face in it. So, they, yeah, that, that's my main quibble with with the film is that like all of the secondary characters almost feel like tertiary characters just because they're really they're they're not thickly written you know what i mean mm-hmm. um 
but that might be my only beef with this film. I give it four and a half stars. Wow. I'm in love with it. Wow, this uh, might be your favorite film of the I year. I watched so far. it. I watched it by by myself and immediately walked into the living room and said, "We're watching this. You you got to watch this with me. We're watching it again sometime within the next week or two. I'm making you watch this because wow. I, I, I had." so much fun with this movie and i think it is really really funny but i think it's really smart too and i think that's yeah, one of the things I that i appreciated about it and like i mentioned the gallows humor kind of thing like uh, that hit me in a real like existential crisis kind of way where i'm the type of person that just fixates on on my own impending death constantly i, I lay awake at night unable to sleep about that sort of thing and so this this uh it 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 hit me at a perfect time and I, I got more out of it than I was expecting. This was a giant surprise. Well, and this also fits into that almost category that you love too, you know? Yeah. Kind of that's the, the other thing is I am a sucker for this kind of premise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that hit for you. Wow. Oh, big time. I'm assuming that, that it's probably around the three to four three range. Half. Yeah. Three, three and, and a half. Uh, right. So, I mean, you clearly still liked it. I think it. it's a good film. Yeah. It, 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 it could have been such a disaster and there's a lot to really like in this. They really could have. Have are, Were you familiar with Max Barbacow before this? No. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't even looked him up since to see no, what, no, what else he's done. But it, everything looks... But I, I mean, I saw... I saw... Sure-handed. I saw Kiva and Yorma in the credits and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, I know that they had a hand in it, but I didn't see them anywhere on screen. So they just have the product, production company, you know. Fair enough. Um, yeah, this this is uh, this is one of my favorite films of the year so far. All right. Well, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, fix your eyes to the skies and don't trust anyone around you because they could be one of them. We are ranking the six best alien invasion films of all time. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the show. This week, we're paying homage to a bona fide staple of the summer blockbuster subgenre. We are ranking the six best alien invasion films of all time. We said last week that the extraterrestrial intruders could be here for benevolent reasons or for nefarious ones, depending on the film. So that injects quite a bit of variety into an already vast selection pool. So let's begin starting with you, Andy. What is number six on your list of the best alien invasion films of all time? Well, um, most people would have this on their list, but definitely not this low. I have Close Encounters of the Third Kind on my list at number six. Um, never loved this movie. Never understood necessarily personally why it's considered one of Steven Spielberg's best movies. Um, you know, but then I watched it again, and I think it's worthy of this category somewhere. It has to be because it's... It's, it's like, like kind of, of the pinnacle of this genre, genre we're talking about. One, one of the, like, 
like iconic movies. Even if you don't love it necessarily, there are iconic moments that really signify what we're talking about right now. So, and 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 to see where he did it in his career and the smaller resources he had at the time, and the look of it is pretty amazing. And it is kind of funny because we are from this area where this movie's set in, and it's kind of really interesting to see that in such a big, big movie. Um, there's enough in this movie, and I think we've talked about this on another list at some point, and everyone knows this movie. So I don't need to go too far into it, but I do like, you know, a lot of the effects in the film still look really great. Um, there are some moments that are... There's high highs in this movie, and then there's other moments where I'm just like, ah... You know, I think it's a little overrated in stretches, but ultimately I had to make my list because I don't think it's a great category anyway. So if I didn't put this on the list, I'd be like, that's kind of stupid. Yeah, this just barely missed my list. And when talking to people today about my list, they were very upset that I didn't have this on <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and they said, if your co-host doesn't put this on his list, I'm boycotting your podcast. So thank you. <laughs> Barely made it. For putting this on the show so that uh, so that we don't get boycotted. Wouldn't have made it had uh, Annihilation been ruled out. Yeah. So that was the um, last second call. <laughs> we, we, we did talk about this before on our films set in Indiana list. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, number six for me is kind of similar to the the lead-in that you gave on Close Encounters. For me, it is John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm -hmm. I've, I, I've never really loved this film. I've never really loved John Carpenter. But The Thing has to make the list for me because um, it is a lot of fun. Um, and the creature effects, the practical effects that are used in it are really, really impressive. They hold up. I mean, like I watched this again last night, um, and, and was kind of blown away by, by how, how like genuinely creepy and scary some of these creature effects are. Yeah. 38 years old. And, um, yeah. Uh, and this also has that one setting vibe for you too. Um, were you surprised that Ennio Morricone did the score for this film? I, I was too. When I saw it come up, I was like, oh. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and I thought it was oddly fitting. Really like, fun we did, score We too. did not plan this no, at all. Very pulsating yeah, score. It's a very like non-Morricone sounding score. Yeah, too. And it does work. But um, you got you got really cool performance from Kurt Russell at the very oh, front yeah. of it. But um, Wilford Brimley gives a really interesting performance. Keith David this. gives a really he interesting looks, performance. He's great in He it. looks so young in it. Yeah, he does. Um, he does. He looks like Mackay Pfeiffer. He kind of does. <laughs> he age. looks like he could be Mackay Pfeiffer's dad, yeah. just a taller, skinnier version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of, of fun side performances, lots of interesting, uh, uh, eerie, like character buildup and, and tension buildup. It does build tension really well. Um, and so for those reasons, I really couldn't leave it off the list. It, I, I have qualms with it much like I do most of other Carpenter stuff in that like, I'm not wild how it's directed. Uh, it seems a little amateurish, especially once you get down to the editing. Um, it seems like, it seems like, um, they didn't get enough coverage for certain things. And so they're like, all right, just cut it now. 
you know, but but those are pretty DIY kind of guy. Exactly. And and I know for some people that works. For me, it's a little it it takes me out of scenes. But um, but I I don't see how you can really make a list like this without the thing. So it's the best flamethrower movie of all time. Uh until this past year. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It still (laughs) takes the cake for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's number five on your list? Number five for me is something I found surprising that made it because I hadn't thought about this movie in a while. But I have fond memories of it. This movie's 10 years old now. It came out in 2010. And it was a movie that surprised me at the time. I had just gotten really into Scoot McNary as an actor. And when this came out, it was kind of like a, it was a no-budget kind of thing. It looked kind of like, when I first saw the previews, I was like, eh, this looks kind of cheesy. But Gareth Edwards' Monsters is actually quite impressive for the for the budget it was given. You know, I've always wanted to see this and never got around to it. Scoot McNary is the star in this movie, and he plays a journalist who is tasked with escorting a an American tourist through an infected zone in Mexico many years after after an alien invasion kind of swept the world and they have to get across this area in into the US and this movie that's basically the simple premise of this movie and that's really what it is it's kind of a road movie mixed with an alien invasion movie mixed with a monster movie but gareth edwards actually directs this in a way that masks over the the cgi is kind of shadowed enough to where it never never looks bad because the movie doesn't have a budget much at all. And so it can't really get into the, you know, Cloverfield kind of vibe because it just doesn't have the money for it. Instead, it kind of focuses on these actors, these two actors, and in this kind of... In, in the world we live in right now, it made me think of it even more. So, I mean, it's I have fond memories of this movie. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it, but I, I remember really liking it a lot. And so I don't know what a rewatch would bring. Maybe I wouldn't like it as much, but I'm putting it on the list. Well, it seems like this is definitely how Gareth Edwards got all the money that he got to start making subsequent films. And this was kind of like an indie darling Mm -hmm. sci-fi thing, like, like a Midnight Madness kind of hit at the time. I just never got around to do it. To, to seeing it, and and even when I told people, you know, last week that I was working on this list, this was one that was recommended to me by a couple of different people. I think you, I think you should check it out at some point. Yeah. Well, I didn't, and so for that reason, number five on my list is Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Hmm. Um, uh, we talked about this somewhat recently. I don't yes. remember. It was on your birth year movie. Yes, that's right. Which is funny that the thing was back also back to back eighty twos on this wow. list. Very strange. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. Man, I wasn't gonna put this on there. There were so many other films that I wanted to make this list, but then when I was start, starting to compile the list, I was thinking to myself, like, can you really honestly say that that movie is better than E. T. And so many of them, I couldn't. Um, while E.T. is far from perfect, and, and I discussed it, you know, uh, several weeks ago on, on that on that list, um, you know, the, the back half of the film starts to get really, um, really geared toward kids, a little, little too fantastical, a little too juvenile. But um, all of that lead up is surprisingly, I don't want to say adult, but I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss for what, what other word would, I mean, you know. There are scenes that are genuinely scary early on before you even see E.T. when you just hear him and then things like that. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, 
if it is geared towards kids, it's not talking down to them. And that's one of the things that Spielberg has consistently been really, really good at is his films that are geared towards kids or for all ages. They never insult the intelligence of kids. Kids are smarter than what, than what most people give them credit for. He's always known that is what he's saying. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, E.T. is, is kind of still delightful to this day. I'll maintain that it's a tad bit overrated, but I, for me personally, I don't expect it to be on your list, but for me personally, I don't see how I could have made a list like this. Um, And if we aren't excluding aliens that are here on accident or for for nice reasons, um, how you can make the list without it, so... See, I think this is a great film. I like it more than you, but it's not going to make my list. For whatever reason, I just didn't have it in this category enough for me. I get that. I do love this movie, though. I think it's one of his better movies, period. I have just too many fond memories of it growing up. Yeah. And when it hits its real high marks, there's some moments that are just like, wow. I mean, other than the last 30 minutes, I think it's like, it's near perfect right up until that moment. Yeah, there's some moments in the last half hour, but there's still, ooh, man, I get get chills thinking about the final, final scene. Yeah. Um, that that really is something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's so many good scenes in this film. Yeah. It's, it's too iconic. I get why you have it. Yeah. yeah. Number four? Uh, number four for me is... <laughs> one of those movies I've always loved and I've seen it many times and I watched it again the other day saw it in the theater when it came out and that is The X-Files Fight the Future is that, that not the first one the second 1998, one 1998 yes that is the first one the yeah, second yeah. one was called um, I Want to Believe or something like that okay fair enough I thought about putting this on my list I love this film and even though I cannot stand it in movies when it feels so scripted as... Like, I, I thought about this with Terms of Endearment. This is random, but I recently rewatched Terms of Endearment. I was like, how can people love this so much when the, the characters are constantly saying the names of the characters so many times it becomes distracting? Yeah, because people don't actually talk like that in, in real life. You don't. I, I don't keep referring to you as Andy over and over again unless I'm referencing you on the script or something. Yeah, right before we recorded, were we saying, was I going, so Noah, so Noah, Noah, Noah. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Noah? No, and that happens in so many movies, and you don't even realize it unless you really focus on it. Oh, it's great. I focus on it too It's irritating and grating on the ears. But... When Mulder and Scully do it, it is the exception to the rule. <laughs> <laughs> well, because those names are A, iconic, and B, so cool. And they're both so good at delivering just the names of one another. <laughs> yeah, well, the decade of doing it on yeah. syndicated television. Yeah. yeah. And this was just trying to say, hey, we're back, and let's make a really good two-hour episode. And let's pack everything we can into this. But, yes, there's too much going on in this movie. But, man... I think the effects are great. I think that the aliens are actually scary, unlike the alien from Signs, who shows up later on in Signs. Um, these these things are scary, and this movie actually borderline, it, it takes its PG-13 rating and pushes it as far as it can go. Uh, and, yeah, um, I mean, Duchovny and... And, and Anderson are both just ridiculously good. Well, historically, Fox really fought the filmmakers on wanting to maintain that PG-13 rating because, you know, because they wanted more butts in the seats because it is a television show that's on network television. I remember Fox really fighting with them about wanting to maintain that PG-13 rating and the directors being like, all right, but we're going to 
if you're going to give an inch, we're going to take just as close to a mile as we can. It's a hard PG-13. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it, it, I, just, I just, this movie is just a blast. Yeah. It's so much fun. Well, um, now that you mention it, since you brought it up, number four on my list is M. Night Shyamalan. Signs. I knew you were going to talk about M. Night Shyamalan on this damn list. <laughs> it's either Fincher, Jonathan Glazer, or M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> Man, M. Night Shyamalan, man. I can't get on board with him like you can. Uh, uh, look, I haven't been on board with him for over a decade. I know, I know but, but I, I fell off. I'm with you with somewhat with the Sixth Sense, and I am with you on Unbreakable, but that's where I fall off. I used to like Signs until I watched it the other day. I watched it a month or two ago, and I still really like it. I, look, I, I think the fact that you don't see aliens until the very end of the film uh, I, I like that about it because it's more about the never saw it. that's true I do, I do too <laughs> uh, because it's more about the personal relationships and um I think that Gibson gives uh, a one of his best performances of his late career of his 21st century performance I'll agree with you because I think he is better at making the comedy that Shyamalan's trying to get across so much. He's better at delivering the comedy than some of the other characters. Yeah, Shyamalan's brand of humor is kind of ham-fisted. There's too much comedy in this. Yeah, it, there's too much comedy in a lot of Shyamalan stuff, and it's and like I said, it's a little ham-fisted. And um, it takes a certain actor to get it across. And sometimes, like, for example, Bruce Willis isn't terrific at it. But he loves Which is him. funny because Bruce Willis is a pretty deft comedic actor. It's just... Yeah. Shyamalan's brand uh, of humor that he writes on the pages that's not what Willis is great at for some reason Gibson is really good at it and Joaquin Phoenix is deadpan and and wonderful at it as well Oof, there's this there's the scene where they where they meet up at the door and they're about to go chase who they who they think the 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 fellas the town the town assholes that they think are are outside they're about to chase them around the house and the, yeah. the michael showalters <laughs> yeah yes the michael he's credited as as one of them um and uh, 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 when they're getting ready, and then subsequently when they run around the house shouting uh, 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 expletives and stuff. Uh, that's the that kind is of, a funny scene. That is a really funny scene, and they're both really good at it. Um, a great performance by Little Culkin. Great performance by Little Breslin. She tries. Yeah, I think she's absolutely adorable in it, honestly. She's adorable, yes. The way she's, she's good constantly it. smacking her lips uh, <laughs> because she's thirsty. There's, There's so many moments when I look, focused on her and she's like, what are we doing on set right now? Like the vibe, and I get it. She's like five. Uh, <laughs> Calkin is a natural. Oh man, he's so good. Uh, but then once you do get into the scarier elements of the film, uh, uh, the aliens don't bother me that much. The reflection of the alien is effective. Yes, absolutely. But that that's, is effective. But that's how that's that's all Shyamalan because of the way that he at that period in time he was going out of his way to choose camera angles and framing and setting his camera in really unique and inventive yeah. ways. He wanted to be Hitchcock just so bad. He, he thinks he is, I'm sure still. But he, when he, it's fine. I love the angle and the reflection. If you kept it at that, it would have been so much more effective. Because when you actually get a close-up of the thing, you can't. And that, 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 that doesn't look good. I'm not saying this is a perfect film. I'm just saying it's one of the six best alien invasion films. <laughs> And then there's a scene where Gibson chops off the fingers of one of them, and it looks creepy until the fingers are chopped off, and then it looks like a cartoon. Yeah, but again, that scene is so, like, like the tension is just ratcheted up. I was, I mean, I'm anxious as hell. I would agree that the tension is ratcheted, but it's spoiled for me so many ways. 
That's uh, fair. We're never going to agree on... There's a scene with a baseball bat that's really kind of stupid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that as a plot contrivance is... Oof, it's, I mean, that was a stretch. Come on. Yeah, I, I mean, this isn't an amazing film or anything. No, no you can think it's good, and that's fine. I'm just, we're just, I love disagreeing, and yeah. this was a fun one. I, yeah. But we also have to say, how ridiculous, come on. Does he really need to put himself in key roles in movies? Every time. He looks awkward in this. He does. He, there are moments where he can deliver a line well, but... You can also see him trying to get the performance right. You know, like, I'm going to nail this. And he's really proud of himself. Yeah. Too. That's one of the things I dislike about him the most. That's why it's better when he puts himself in, in, in different ways, like, like in The Village, for example, when we never actually see his face. He's there, he's delivering lines, but we don't actually see him. He's, he's kind of slightly off camera or well, we out of the frame. talk about The Village. You don't want to do that. You're right. You're right. You're right. Um, it's time to hand out medals. What is number three on your list of the best alien invasion films of all time? Uh, the first time watch. Uh, I think it's the only first time watch. Yeah, it's the only first time watch for me. And that is, so there's been four versions of this movie and I've never seen any of them. And I decided to watch the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This was number seven on my list. It came so close to making this list. I just, I really like this. First of all, this look and the, the this era of cinema in general is something I love the most. It's still my favorite decade of cinema. And there's this vibe. So this is the only version that I'm aware of. I've read about it a little bit that is set in San Francisco. And there's this whole kind of like upper-class vibe of people who are all in a bubble and don't have the worries of a normal world that live in San Francisco. In this yeah, this this neoliberal pseudo-intellectual, like, yeah. like especially Leonard Nimoy's character. Oof. Yeah, he's a real creep in this. Oof. He's, he's scary in this, actually. Um, and this is, uh, this is, you know, I never saw, so I've not seen in The Invasion, the most recent one. I, that looked really bad. The one with Kidman? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see it. I've heard really bad things. And then the Puppet Masters from the early 90s. Whoa. The Donald Sutherland movie? Yeah, that one. <laughs> what about that? That that is essentially Invasion of the Body Snatchers also. Well, but there's a there's a there's a one that's just called Body Snatchers to oh, the 90s. I see. And then there's the original versions from the 50s yeah. that, that people are saying is a classic. I've never seen it. Yeah. But I like this version because the way Philip Kaufman directs it is really kind of the vibe that builds and builds and builds. And then he chooses when things go really weird, he gets handheld and starts doing these tracking shots. Like he gets you inside of the head of Donald Sutherland's character in this movie in a really effective way. You can tell that he's doing something different right out of the gate. Um, from the very opening, when you see these things on their home planet and they're bubbling and, and, and growing. And then when they finally come to earth and they attach themselves to the plants, and the tendrils start to, I mean, and it's close-up shots of these plants. The first, like, 15 minutes, there's no dialogue at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. it's not 15. I'm probably exaggerating. It's, it feels like But it. it does feel like that. And and you're like, wow. Even at this time, for a film like this, he had the patience to kind of let this build, use these really cool practical effects. Mm -hmm. For um, the most part, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I was... I was really, really into it, especially the way that it builds. Um, yeah. I was super impressed. And then, and then it builds. And you, there's no reason to worry about spoilers. I just think one of the reasons I have this pretty high on my list is because 
it's too, too late, late man. There's there is nothing you can do. Exactly. And that's why there's no happy ending to this. That, this movie, if you're looking for something uplifting, woof. Go somewhere else. Woof. There's moments movie, yeah. where you have hope. Yeah. This movie it's bleak. will shoot you down. Yeah. And and, and that's that last moment. That's one of the most rewarding things about it is how bleak it is. But Jeff Goldblum gives a pretty great early career performance. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah. I, I I like how, you know, it, it's it's all about building that tension and that unease that you get with these kind of like these the, this sub 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 genre of alien invasion films where it's where it's where it's about assimilation and and uh, uh, taking over you know what I mean um, it, it really gets into the, like the psychology of it and and especially like social science as well um, the, I found that really really rewarding um, the reason it didn't make my list is it's I felt it started to get a little silly near the end and then. With- and then marching and all that. Yeah. And then when you see the dog with the human face, I out loud said, Nope, that's it. I'm out. (laughs) That was fucking cool. It completely (laughs) took me out of it. And, and by that, my girlfriend wasn't watching it with me, but she came home when I, when I had like half an hour, when I, when I had a half hour, hour left and I was telling her that I really, really liked it, but that it was starting to lose me. And then the dog thing happened and I literally out loud said, Nope, that's it. I'm done. (laughs) Did you stop the movie? No, no, no. I didn't. I didn't stop it. But I mean, that's with like ten minutes left. You know yeah, what I mean? And yeah, I was just like, is. "Oh, you were so close to making this list, and then you have this like weird dog with this like shitty CGI face on it." It just it took me out of it. All right. All right. Speaking <laughs> of fucking dogs getting upended by aliens, oh. I have the thing at number two. We haven't done my number three yet. Oh, oh shit! It was me. You talked about it more than I did. I think that's why I thought. Anyway, the thing's gonna be number two. Yeah. What's number three for you? Number three for me is a stone cold classic of the genre. I had so much fun rewatching this. It is not perfect at all, but I don't see how. No, no, it's Independence. I don't see how you can make this list. It is not Independence Day. God, it's Men in Black. (laughs) Okay, so it's Will Smith. Okay, yeah, exactly. Um, You know, we started. We we had the idea to do this list because we wanted to talk about summer blockbusters and will smith himself is the self-anointed king of fourth of july um yeah and we had the conversation well i just left it up to you on this whether this deserved to be on the list or not. i decided it i should have had this conversation with you because ultimately i decided that it does deserve to be on the list because yes the aliens have already been here for quite some time but the main conflict at the center of the film is one particular alien coming invading crashing down Taking over a human yeah. life and then trying to destroy the planet, and that's what this movie is. And that is essentially ex- that is exactly what this movie is. And it is anchored by a terrific supporting cast by Vincent D'Onofrio. As far as like, it's his best performance. As far as like wonderful physical comedy um, and like body humor and like gross out kind of stuff, he is he is phenomenal in this. He's never been better. But Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith together as a pairing, um, Will Smith at his absolute maximum charming, and Tommy Lee Jones doing this like 
real deadpan, like over it kind of like gruff guy, but he's really funny in it too. And because he's such a good actor, the, the dramatic moments, albeit they are few and far between, they do actually resonate because the majority of them are given by Tommy Lee Jones and they and, and they land so well because he's such a good actor. And Will Smith is no slouch either. So he's really good at that stuff, but Smith is on fire. So charismatic, so charming throughout the whole thing. He's fun and he's funny there are there are scenes and and there's some um sight gags that uh because of the the technology at the time they don't age super duper well yeah Yeah. but for the most part this is everything you could want out of a summer blockbuster it's everything you could want out of a fun alien invasion comedy between like between like fun sight gags with like different aliens that are silly and fun and look weird you know there's that there's lots of fun action there's the mystery box behind it, you know, but behind Orion's uh, 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 collar. L- Linda Fiorentino gives a... I-, I love her in this, actually. She's, no, no, this, was, this was her time. She was, she was really something in this era. You know, she's required to play a doctor who's aloof, but not stupid, and she rides that that line really, really she's well. She's always been a smart actress, yeah. Yeah, I, I just... It's a really, really fun movie that is that is the staple of this summer blockbuster version of well, this. I mean, this Independence subject. Day started his dominance, and then this just cemented it. Yeah. for the holiday. Yeah, and, and I love how it's like kind of a standalone film as well. Like it gets tied up in a nice little bow at the end. There didn't need to be any subsequent films. Yeah, it was such a big hit though. They had. I know, and I realize why they had to. Um, but uh, it's it's a crowd pleaser and it's kind of a blast and I'm I was not gonna do it. I, I initially had it like kind of low on the list. Like I was like I'm gonna put it on the list. I'll put it at six. But it's I rewatched it and then it started rising and I was like this is a staple of this genre. I'm I gotta give it a medal. So number three it's in your nineties too. Black. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I bet you can't guess what my number two is. Um, my my okay, my guess is Mac and Me, but I but I don't I don't want to make a fool of myself. Well, it's the recut version of Mac and Me, which is John Carpenter's The Thing, which came out several years before Mac and Me. I don't know how that works, but you do the math. <laughs> anyway, I got so I was jumping the gun with the dog alien dog thing. Wow, that was on my brain. Anyway, this movie, much like. Men in Black hits you in the right ways. This movie does it for me. I love, really love John Carpenter. I appreciate his kind of workmanlike, kind of like, we're going to build this without any kind of bullshit. Let's try to create everything in this movie. And I love the setting of it. Uh, I love how cold this movie looks and feels almost as you're watching it. And there's just... This is still one of the scariest movies I think I've seen. It, there's just this vibe that just really, really kind of crawls under your skin. And there's this, they set up this well enough to where you're always constantly thinking about who's inhabited by this thing at all times and what is going to happen because when things do happen, they're pretty grotesque. And in ways that, like, bring Alien to mind a little bit. But it, like, ups the ante on the gore part of it because that's just what Carpenter is as opposed to something like Ridley Scott. He's not really worried about the scientific part of it all or anything like that. He just, he's here to make you freaked out and 
everything's going to blow up. He's definitely here to make you squirm. Yes. And this movie effectively does that. And it started, I think this started the great collaboration with him and Kurt Russell. They had a few films. They did Big Trouble in Little China, and then they did the Escape movies, too, together. But um, that, Kurt Russell just looks the part in this so well. He's got that burly look to him. Yeah, and the way he's, like, carrying around that bottle of J&B. And it's uh, just the way like, that snow attaches to his beard. Yeah, yeah. Everything looks right, you know? Yeah. And then, I just think that it just, the way it concludes is just satisfying. In an action spectacle, monster movie way, it got me. Everything blows up. Everything, Everything just, just goes, goes to shit. shit. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a scene in the middle where Kurt Russell's wearing this like old prospector's hat. Like he looks like a like a like a like a dude would be panning for gold. It's yeah, very yeah. it's very You're getting ready for the hateful eight kind of vibe. Yeah, it's very fun. And I just thought, of course he's able to pull that off in a film like this. Like even the costumes, it's just like they normally wouldn't make sense, but these are eccentric dudes that are up there in in, in the some weird dudes, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a weird variety of ages of people. It's such an odd crew. Yeah. And I found it really captivating. So that's two for me. Uh number two for me is I really I I swear to God I didn't do this on purpose. Number two for me is the same as the number two last week, and that is Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to talk about it for very long because it was number two last week and I talked about it uh, pr- practically ad nauseum. But um, I think it's just a really interesting twist on the alien invasion trope. Um, I, I, I think it's mesmerizing the way that it's shot. I think Johansson gives a very subtle performance that, that can be really rewarding. Um, the effects, mm-hmm. uh, like oh, I, yeah. like I mentioned last week, um, the the effects where people were walking and getting caught into her lair, the effects at the end when we see her in her alien form, is terrifying. She's oh, yeah. scary, like legit scary. Um, I just I love this film, and I knew I was going to be kind of top heavy with with stuff like this. You know, it's like well, well, yeah, it's better than Men in Black. You know what I mean? It's a better film, and so I wasn't going to put it lower on the list. Two felt really right. And it was kind of fun that it was number two on my list two weeks in a row. That's literally all I'm going to say about it. See, I, I mentioned, I, I commented that I hadn't seen it since it came out, and I really need a rewatch of it. That's why I'm not going to, I didn't feel right putting it on my list. But I really like this movie a lot, yeah. too. Um, did, what was our number one last week? I think we had the same. We had the same number one last week. And that was quite a lot. That was Eyes Wide Shut last week. We've, uh, in the last few weeks, we've been really, it's not, in the first year that we did the show, we, didn't really have a whole lot of crossover. And it seems like this year we've been having a lot more. Well, I just have a feeling we're going to have the same number one. And my number one is 2016's Arrival. That is my number one as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I, I, I had a feeling. What are we doing? Said under the but we, we need to quit meeting like this. I, well, let's get a, I don't know what category is going to break that streak. Dude, let's just say this is the best alien invasion film. Well, yeah. This is. is how you do this genre and do it right. Yeah, yeah because not only does does this one of our greatest modern directors really build a world and build everything needed in the first act, but the way the last act really comes together is my. When I first saw the first time I saw it in the theater, I was blown away. I liked it 
the entire way. I thought I was really on board with this. I'm like, I don't know if I like this as much as some of his other recent work. Well, yeah, because there's there's nothing to not like with the first two acts. You know, yeah, it's it's beautifully it. directed, beautifully scored, beautifully acted. But, you know, it's like, where's all this all going, though? I really, really love it, but where's it going? Well, the last act makes you appreciate the entire movie. I mean, it ties the whole thing together in a way that's just, it's jaw on the floor yeah, stuff. It's, it's really impressive stuff. And I'd like to think that maybe a movie like this even turned you around ever so slightly on Jeremy Renner. Uh, I found myself <laughs> thinking this is definitely my favorite Jeremy Renner performance. He's very good in this. Uh, I, you, I, you bring this up, and I don't think that a, a whole lot of our listeners know because we haven't talked about him not a, a, lot. a ton. I'm historically not a Jeremy Renner fan. Right. Um, this and, and The Hurt Locker are the only two things I think I've actually liked him in. Hmm, what about uh, American Hustle? Yeah. I could take him or leave him in that. Um, you like his music the most, though. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> Just to set the we record straight, his music is his dog music shit. Is, um, is about as bad as you can get. I, I remember this year, 2016, I remember that this was the first big theatrical hit after Donald Trump was elected president. I remember seeing it in the theater um, and, and being in, I mean, literally right after, uh, and it was the next week. Yeah. yeah, it was that weekend after. Um, I remember seeing it in the theater and being enraptured, but, I, but at the same time, I was very, very excited to see it. So I got my hopes all up. Um, I remember, um, there was a lot of controversy about the fact that Amy Adams wasn't nominated for best actress. Not only that, but, um, people thought she should have been the front runner for best actress and didn't even garner a nomination. Listen, she's been nominated a lot. But, but she's, she's still, still underrated. She's one of the greatest actresses of the last, whatever, 10, 15, 20 years. And it's films like this that are the reason that she's so underrated. Because, I mean, she is, she's in almost every scene of this film. So she definitely carries it. Um, and she's, she's, she's breathtaking. Perfect. She's perfect. She's, she is pitch perfect in it. And this is one of the best later career Forrest Whitaker performances. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say he's been great over the last, you know, since he's won an Oscar for the last King of Scotland, you can't really count on one hand where you've been like, wow, Forrest Whitaker and that, but in this, I think he's perfect yeah, he, for this part. He has, a, he has this nice subtlety that that he used to be renowned for you know oh yeah and um he's not the first guy that you would think of to play a army general but he does it so effortlessly in this yeah i like the way he does it the mode he does it in um i know that max richter's score can be overused quite a bit especially um uh on, on what's the what's the name of the on the Something of Daylight, uh, the, the song that gets used multiple times in this yeah. film. Yeah, but and this well, it's is, been used in other films, yeah, too. but this is a yeah. perfect use of it. Yes, yes. Um, Just the way Villeneuve uses, oh. moves his camera, sets it, and sets his camera on sticks and then moves it in. Um, some of the dolly shots. The atmospheric Malachian, like, fog rolling over the hills while you still see those big it towering shots of the is, shells. He nails it. He's so capable. He can do anything. He was the perfect director for this for this particular well, project. Well, he's been perfect director for everything he's done so far. I mean, he's the guy who made a Blade Runner sequel, an impossible Blade Runner sequel possible. It wasn't bad at all. It was actually very good. Really, really good. Which is not easy to do. Uh, I just the, and and the and the 
the themes thematically of what this film is about, about memory, about time, about language and weaponizing language and about our society's um, uh, uh, tendency to, to jump to conclusions, especially oh, yeah. when it comes to um, uh, uh, arguments and, and combat and being combative. Uh, and adversarial. Uh, and there's there's so many themes at play in in this film that that are that particularly resonate today, and definitely I mean, resonated the weekend I, that it came out. Which is so odd because no, no one could have predicted the world would be the way it was when it came out. Yeah. When this movie was put together. No, it would still been a joke when this movie was in production. That in a year or whatever from then, yeah, that we'd live in a world where. Our, our president, president is this kind of person, person. but yeah. fascinating release date for this movie. I think that's going to go down as one of the more like insane time capsule weeks for cinema. And this movie, a part of as a part of it, is insane. And just the way that it all wraps up, man. It's oh, it's it's beautiful, and it makes you almost want to cry your eyes out. I, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I kind of love one day to do a pick six of our favorite endings of like this century or something yeah this would probably make yeah it's a gorgeous gorgeous ending um uh, oh man it's great yeah it's, it's a great, great film it's a really really lovely lovely film I, i'm so excited for what he has to offer with dune you know and i'm not even particularly i would never be like ah dune yeah i'm right i love dune. yeah but the stills that you've seen but from it with and, him behind yeah it, yes. uh, i i hope that our country can get uh, its act together with COVID so that that film can wrap up production. <laughs> it, well, that, and it needs to be seen in a theater, it sounds like. Yeah. Like that, all of his movies. That too. But yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm thrilled that you... Did you rewatch this? Last, Last year. Okay. I, I've seen it three times. I watched it again this weekend. See, I because I this week. Because I knew it was going to be my number one and I wanted it to be really fresh and God, I was. I'm. I'm happy. I rewatched it. It's a great film. It is. I don't know where it ranks for me on his list because that's such a crazy. Yeah, that's a nuts list. And eventually, we'll do that list. Probably, yeah. maybe even leading up to Dune next summer or something like yeah. that. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. Um, so now it's time for the throwback challenge, and we chose. Um, we chose Sergio Leone's 1984 uh, film. Once Upon a Time in America, particularly we chose it because Ennio Morricone did the score for it. We didn't know that the thing was going to make both of our lists for this episode. That's odd. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but that's, that is the reason that we chose this film. Um, uh, despite the fact that it's nearly four hours in its runtime. And I feel like that's one of the things before we really get into the meat of the film is, is that we should discuss the fact that there was a U.S. version Mm -hmm. that's two hours and 12 minutes or something like that. Which is supposedly like an abomination from what I Yeah, think. so so um, when this premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, it was met with a with a uh, unheard of 20-minute standing ovation from the audience. And that was at a time before standing ovations were like a regular thing at Cannes, which they've kind of become nowadays. But, um, uh, and then the studio just could not fathom releasing a three-hour and 40-minute you know, epic. And so they made the U.S. cut. Leone was just, was so upset about it because initially he had he had filmed like seven or eight hours worth of footage for this. Mm -hmm. And it was quite a task for him to cut it down to, to the 340 that it was. That might have ended his um, life. And, and historically, uh, uh, um, Siskel and Ebert had mentioned that um, the, the director's cut is one of the best films 
of the decade. It was their favorite film of 1984. And that the U.S. version, theatrical version, was the worst film of 1984. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I think, my guess is that you and I are probably going to fall somewhere in between those on this. So um, we can get into the meat of it. Um, It is a gangster film. It's a Jewish gangster film. It is. And it follows Robert De Niro's character as he's looking back on the decisions that he made and the friendships as he was growing up as a child, uh, as an immigrant child in New York City. It is in New York City, right? Yes. 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 Um, And and his group of friends becoming young ruffians and trying to get, uh, at a very early age, involved in organized crime. Yes. Among other things that are not appropriate for kids to be doing. Yeah. (laughs) And and he made, um, his character made some decisions um, that he has to live with that have haunted him into his adulthood. And so it's kind of him reflecting on that and also trying to maybe possibly make amends as well. Yeah, and that's basically the the skeleton of this movie. Uh, you meet lots of different people along the way, but it's mostly De Niro's world and his movie to control. Um, yeah, I think this, I would have guessed, I've been waiting to see this for so many years, and this seems like the type of movie that would be one of those movies I would adore with, a, with everything. It was set up that way. Um, I've only seen a few Sergio Leone movies, but I do like what I've seen. I love Ennio Morricone's scores for most movies. And I got to say, I really like this score. I love this score, actually. The so score is a big part of this. Yeah, especially the pan flute that 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 re- keeps recurring. And one of the characters, I think it's William Goldsmith's character that, that keeps... Um, uh, playing the pan flute all throughout this, even as a child, and and on into, so and that's like a recurring theme through it, and it's actually pretty beautiful. Yeah, a lot of the score reminded me of the score in um, one of my favorite scores for Cinema Paradiso that he did. Yeah, it's very similar. To that. I, I'm not wild about his use of some popular music, particularly. No, I agree. Yesterday by the Beatles. Oh, that was not. That right. kind of got under my skin, but uh, but all of his original score for this, I thought is really beautiful and really fitting, and that's one of the reasons I'm glad we chose to do this. Yes. Is because it's one of his better scores. See, I've always, like I said, been dying to see this, but just needed to carve the time out. I mean, it's funny that we get that in our heads that a four-hour movie is too much, but it's just like watching two movies back-to-back. How many times we watch two movies back-to-back? Constantly. Yeah, but it is an undertaking, somewhat. And this movie I did find to be quite an undertaking. As I was watching. Look, it's not that taxing to watch a three-and-a-half-hour movie. Not really. It is taxing to watch a three-and-a-half-hour movie where your protagonist that you're stuck with the entire time is an utterly lifeless, utterly despicable human being and just not a, that you can't root for. Not a performance from De Niro that I would say is anywhere near his best. No, not necessarily. The character itself is not that interesting. No, and he's an awful person. Well, and there are things in this movie that have not aged well. Ooh, there's some tough scenes to watch. There are two separate rape scenes in which Robert De Niro's character rapes two different people in this film. The first one, I was just like, oh my God, what are we doing? And then the second one, Unnecessary. I, I mean, I could have shut the movie off. Had I not been doing it for the show, I would have. It was not necessary. 
no. to depict these things the way they did. No, and 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 I almost thought to myself, why didn't I watch the two hour and twelve minute version? I bet it would would have cut out one or both of these. I'm rips. sure they're not in it, but I don't see any version of this movie something I would love. Um, and I just don't understand the, the, the not just the rape scenes, but the way the women are treated as characters. Yeah. in this movie, they are literally just throwaways. Like you're here to please our men in this movie. Not only are they written like throwaway characters, they're treated by the other characters as if they are disposable. Yes, and poor Jennifer Connelly in this movie. She gets, I mean, I know they're just, she just plays the, the, the child role of the Elizabeth McGovern character, but... Perfect casting, by the way. It's great casting, but both of them, I feel so bad for those actresses, especially Elizabeth Especially Elizabeth. And she gives a great performance. And that's the other thing. There are some really... much she has to work with. There are some really great performances in this. And and let's go back to the casting. The casting of the young kids oh, and the adults. Young De Niro looks it's spot on. Everybody is spot on. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of insane how great a job of casting this is. Um, uh, it, it's, it kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and there are really great performances. Young, young James Woods is really good. And James Woods is really good in this. I like James Woods. Like you mentioned, Connolly is very good in it. And McGovern is probably the best performance in the entire film. Yes. yes. William Forsyth is Forsyth, not Goldsmith. Forsyth. Yes. Thank sorry. Yes. Thank you. He's a like creepy. He's got this look that's just so but that's what Creepy. he that's what he does and I he's know. good at and it and and again the young version of him is really good too yeah. Yeah. Well, honestly de niro delivers one of the weaker performances in the film he's, he's just, just listen there, there are, are characters who are bad people but they're, they're more, more interesting and so you can at least you can admit that you are engaged by them even though they're not good people this is just a bad person. Exactly. He's just a bad person. And he's not interesting. No, he's not interesting. And you're with him the entire way. And that's what made the... long stretches that... Actually, you know what? This movie does not need to be this long. I don't think it does at all. I don't... I'm not saying that I would go and watch the trimmed version. I don't have an interest, but... I'm good now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there... I think there's a reason this movie is not really mentioned by most as a, a great in this genre. I've been, you know, reading so much over the last 20 years about it, how it is like a lost classic in the gangster genre. I don't agree with it. I don't get it either. Uh, I don't hate it, but I, I'm kind of close to disliking it. Yeah, I'm at a two and a half on it. That's exactly where I am. Just yeah. down the middle, two and a half. Yeah, I can't. I can't with it. I'll tell you this: Palm Springs is way better than this. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Oh boy. Okay. Well, uh, you know where that takes us. Oh, throwbacks. No. Well, I mean, we can do that now if you want. Do you want to do it now, or do you want to do the rundown now? It's up to you. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Well, uh, that's our show for today. Yeah. <laughs> Remember to subscribe to the Film Harmonic on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review and a generous rating if you're so inclined. Subscribe also on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever else you happen to get your podcasts. Send us your suggestions for the throwback challenge to thefilmharmonic at gmail.com. We will be back next week without a new film to discuss. And because of that, Andy has an extra special pick six to tell you all about. Sorry, hold on. <clears throat> That's right. In our Picks 6 segment, we are ranking the six best films of the year so far. So I know it's been a weird year for movies in general. We've not 
gotten some of the releases we were supposed to. Several of the big... So many delays because of the world we live in. Yeah, the, the big theatrical releases, especially yeah. the, the new James Bond, the uh, yeah. Tenant for crying out loud. You know, there's there's a lot of things that yeah. have been pushed yeah. back. Yeah, yeah so... so but, but the thing is, I think there's, there's enough that we can dig into to put this list together. Yeah, there are six good movies that yeah, have come out this some year. Very good movies. There are, are some very good ones. Yeah. And, yeah. and then we have to watch maybe some we missed from like January, February, March. Sure. You know, there are some in there like you've seen The Lodge, but I haven't. Mm-hmm. There's some other things. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to this. Good, good. Uh, yeah, I, I'm really excited about it, especially revisiting some of the things. Like, I might even rewatch The Lodge. It's on Hulu. Might as well, right? You know? Yeah. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that. And and uh, and another fun fun surprise. So, we're not just doing the, the six best films of the year so far. We're going to go back to the old format for the Throwback Challenge for just this week. Um, and we're going to challenge one another with a good to great film that each of us has not seen before. So, um, I, this is the way that for the first year of the show, we historically did this. Yeah. Um, and then people started challenging us and then Criterion Channel happened and we kind of got away from this. Uh, and while I don't want to go back to this every week, it still is a lot of fun to do. It's really fun. So yeah. what do you have for me for uh, my challenge for next week? I didn't verify with you because I didn't want to give it away. I hope you haven't seen this. Uh-oh, here we go. It's leaving the Criterion channel at the end of this month. So I thought this was the best time for you to get it in, and that's Werner Herzog's Aguirre, the Wrath of God. Wow. No, I've not seen it. Okay. I've not seen it. Good. 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 Perfect. That is that is very exciting. Is this 70s cinema? 72. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. Very kind of... I mean, you've probably... I mean, you're sure you've read about the quarreling that the two... Oh, yeah. It's... Kinski and Herzog Yeah, had. it's pretty historic. This movie, you can almost feel it as you're watching these scenes unfold. It is a maniacal, maniacal performance. <laughs> well, you're giving me something from 1972, so naturally, I'll give you something from 2014. Yeah. And that is Xavier Dolan's Mommy. Okay. Uh, it right. was my number one foreign language film of the decade. Yes. yes, it was. And I told you that eventually I was going to give it to you as a throwback challenge. And here we are. I'm taking the first opportunity that I have to do that. So I am looking forward to that. It is hopefully nothing like the transporter. <clears throat> no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to give you that as a throwback challenge. Just at, at, at complete in the dark when you're least expecting it, like Good. two years from now or something. Okay. okay. I'm like, surprise, motherfucker. The transporter. <laughs> Jason Statham just died yesterday, and you have to watch this. Okay, I, I will watch it in memoriam of Jason Statham someday. <laughs> um, also, um, there's a... I don't know why I'm talking about a transporter right now out of nowhere, but the, Might as well. there's a scene where he walks up and buys an Orangina from, like, a vending machine that's an Orangina vending machine. And when I was a kid, I lived overseas, and I used to drink Orangina like it was water. And so uh, when I saw that that uh, Orangina vending machine, I was like, oh, my God, my childhood. And I got really excited. This is why you have a soft spot for this movie. It's entirely just because of the Orangina vending machine. Yeah. All right. Perfect. All right. Well, on that note, that's our show. We will see you next time on the Film Harmonic. Neck brace. Substitute.